Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. My name is Nick Jamel, the creator and the host of The Conversation of Our Generation. And this is where we are solving the problems of today with the wisdom of the past. And I know I've been doing a lot of interviews recently, but we're switching it up today and revisiting an interview that I did so that I can kind of break it down and give some more of my other thoughts as well. Because I think it's important to have those conversations, but I also think it's important to revisit and really break down some of the insights because I don't know about you, but when I listen to some of the interviews that are done on podcasts, you can miss really great ideas, insights, interesting points that are made, especially if you're like me and listen to things at one and a half speed. So I wanted to revisit some of the conversations that I've had recently and drop some ideas uh, or really add to the ideas that we talked about rather. And so that's what we're going to do today, and I'll be talking about the interview I did with Amy Mastrini, who is an artist who works in traditional mediums, mainly paint and drawing, and we talked a lot about how the state of art and looking at art today from the point of view of an artist. And so what I want to revisit is several really good points that she made and that came up, which are, you know, really why painting is a better than digital art in a lot of ways, or at least something that connects us to our tradition in a unique way, why beauty is objective and not relative, and why architecture is the highest form of art. And so if you are listening to this episode, you'll get to hear some of those clips as well. But if you're on the Conversation for Our Generation website, you can also check out the YouTube videos and go and view some of the other clips as well to get some more insights from other interviews that I've done. And if you're just on YouTube checking this stuff out, definitely subscribe. If you're listening to the podcast anywhere that it's found, subscribe there as well. Leave a good rating and review. That really helps out. And check more out at conversationforgeneration.com. Another thing that I'm going to do next week in honor of St. Nicholas Day is a mailbag. So trying to mix up the way I do this show and see how people respond and see who likes how you guys like it. And so leave me your thoughts on this show and then also go to conversationforgeneration.com slash contact or DM me on Twitter or Facebook or Parler or comment somewhere with questions for the podcast, for me rather, to answer on the podcast in the mailbag next week. And so definitely do that so that I have some good questions to answer because I have a couple uh, rolling in already, but I want to be able to do kind of a full episode on it just to in my opinion, on not in my opinion, but in my thought, just celebrate St. Nicholas, right? He's the saint I'm named after. St. Nicholas Day is on next Sunday. And so to kind of celebrate him coming and bringing gifts, I'm going to come and have my mailbag full of mailbag answers for you as a present. So sorry, no coal, no, which this time of year might help keep you warm. But that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple weeks here. Just Revisiting some of these interviews, potentially adding some other interviews in there, but with the holidays, and I say that as Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, uh, all those different holidays that are packed in here, people are busy, and I think it's harder a little bit for me and for others to schedule those, So, especially as something that's an extracurricular for me. So I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a heads up there so that you know what to expect, and you can also let me know if there's some pieces or parts of this that you do or don't like. And so with that, since I've kind of 
<laughs> taking a big circuitous route to getting to the point here, let's go ahead and hop into the quote of the week. And I like this one a lot from Thomas Wolfe. He says, culture is the arts elevated to a set of beliefs. This, I think, is a great way of looking at it. We talk about culture being, or politics being downstream from culture, culture being downstream from religion. And I think what this is, is an, a look at the fact that the arts are sort of this exploration of what it means to be individually expressing something, but also connecting that individual experience to what is beautiful and what is true. (laughs) And that is what art is meant to do, is to connect that subjective experience to the objective reality of truth, beauty, and goodness. That is why we like fiction that has, you know, the bad characters getting their comeuppance and justice being done and the hero winning in the end and good triumphing because those are the things that we want to have happen. You know, but we also do recognize and lament art where in the end the hero loses and bad things happen because we recognize that that happens in history. We can see times in history where that happens for a long period of time, right? With painting and with uh, all of the bounds of what's acceptable in art, you see that leak into the culture, right? That for a long time, there were much more strict boundaries. And as those get loosened up, not only do does art become more loose, but the culture in general does. If you look at what was allowed on television in the 30s, or at least in the movies, rather, in the 30s versus what's allowed in movies today, especially even children's movies, you can see that that art pushed the bounds and then also our culture went with it. We allowed more and more sexual stuff, more and more bad language or cussing, and we allowed more and more dirty humor. And whether or not you think that's a good thing or a bad thing doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that as the arts build up or degrade our, or, or I guess I, I should say, as the arts move towards stringent uh, rules that they have to follow and be creative within these rules and these tight bounds, I think you see society is more buttoned up and more orderly. Whereas when art unravels itself and is deconstructionist and a lot of what we see today where beauty doesn't matter as much, being true in your art doesn't matter as much, what we find then... is that the society follows it. Truth begins to not matter. Beauty stops mattering in all sorts of ways, or the profane and the ugly is celebrated even at times because art has started to move even towards not just being ugly, but celebrating ugliness. And the artists really are on the fringe of society in a lot of ways. They are reaching out into kind of the chaos and unable to fully describe what they create, but they can, using their art, 
help people to connect to that experience of reaching into chaos, reaching into this other world in some way. And when they bring that back, whatever they bring back, the society sort of starts to adopt and adapt to because there is something, even bad art has something enticing about it. Just imagine crappy jingles <laughs> that keep stuck in your head, right? It, it just, like, just imagine the goofy jingle from, as a Colts fan, Peyton Manning's whole chicken parm, you taste so good, that whole thing. That's so catchy. It's so bad. It's bad art, but it is in some way art. I mean, it's music, a little jingle, and those things captivate you and catch your attention and pull you in. And despite being bad, it still sticks in your head. And so art does that to us in general, that it will pull us in and captivate us and our beliefs will start to conform to that. Our ideas about the world begin to conform to the art that our society produces, I believe. And that is why I really like this quote, because it packs all of that information into just such a tight, close, you know, just a really tight wording. And it, I think when you unpack it, you see how much that affects in our culture. And so with that, let's go ahead and hop over to some of the pieces of the interview here. And the first one that I want to talk about is why painting is better than digital art. And so let's go ahead and play that clip and we'll talk about it a little bit more. It draws you to kind of the more traditional ways of doing art when you can do computer graphics, you can do all of this digital design stuff. What makes you want to do that instead? That's a, yeah, another good question. Um, Hmm. I guess I just have, um, I honestly think it goes off of uh, feeling a lot. I just like the feeling of using traditional materials more than the feeling of uh, working behind a screen. It feels a lot more direct and um, personal. And um, it's not like there's like a layer between me and the, the art like there is with digital. Um, it's something I've been trying to develop my thoughts around because yeah, it feels a lot more raw and human when I'm painting with like a paintbrush and making brush strokes like directly onto a canvas versus when I'm, I've like downloaded a brush and I'm using like a pen on a screen. Like it's just, there's something different about it. And I think it's because you lose a lot of your signature um, and like the recording of who you are when you're uh, drawing digitally. Like the line will sometimes be artificially perfect. Whereas in real life, if I make a stroke, there's all these subtleties in there that make it mine and make it a lot more human and personal. Um, so, and I think that like, you know, every stroke that an artist makes is like a, a recording of their like existence and their, um, it's like, it's like your signature. It's like, says a lot about, you know, the weight of your hand, um, you know, how much paint you use, all these like subtle decisions that you made um, make it yours. So with, with digital, I think you just lose some of that. Um, you, you just lose some of that character and personal, um, yeah, personal character is, is lost a little with digital. I really like what Amy had to say there about why she uses those traditional mediums, which is that it sort of imprints a bit of her, a bit of her really into her art. Like if you imagine the slight imperfections, the little 
places where it could be a little bit better. That's really what makes it human. And I think that art to be truly as enticing as it can be has to be has to incorporate that human element. It it can't be just perfect stuff created by AI. I think it has to have that connection between subject and object. And that's where the person comes into play is the closer that someone can be to their art, the the more they can impress upon their art that subjective experience that they have, that emotion and all of that that is encompassed in a piece of art with writing or movies or whatever that is. I know that there's a lot of, I mean, obviously movies are a little bit tougher, but you can see that CGI, for instance, kind of can make things interesting, but also takes away from the depth of the character and the some of those other things that are great from old movies, for instance. And then on top of that, kind of those imperfections that I mentioned, I think if you listen to blues or rock and roll or some of those looser, even folks like folk, you kind of have this loose way of doing things that makes it more human, makes it more engaging, kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat a little bit. And I think that's also, I haven't been to many symphonies, uh, yeah, very few, and they're generally at like a high school level. But when you hear a high school band or a symphony or orchestra, you know, something like that playing, it's very different than just if you were to put all of Beethoven's music into a computer and it spews it out. There's even a recording of someone playing it live a lot of times doesn't quite get it because they touch it up and they adjust this or that. But when you hear it live, you have some sort of connection with the person playing the music. And I think that that's what those tools that are, you know, because really still the piano, the organ, a paintbrush, all those things are still tools that an artist uses pretty similarly to the digital tools, right? It's not that much different in kind but it is different, I think, in its form, that the more you distance yourself from the art that's being created, the more it becomes impersonal, the more it becomes just maybe something beautiful, but maybe not as engaging, maybe not as expressive. And I hate to like push people to be expressive because I think that that is a problem with our modern art is that it's just all expression with no truth or beauty, but you have to still have both of those things. And I don't want to see us have a pendulum swing away from, you know, the subjective experience interplaying with the world around us and what that looks like and having that expressiveness, you know, it's a, just no expression and only cold beauty, right? Even those old statues and paintings that you see, if you look at the faces of the people that are in there or the positions and all of the details, you can see 
real raw emotion that's trying to be encapsulated. You can feel emotion in classical music. You can hear the triumph in Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. You can hear, you know, just, you can feel like you're on a chase when you hear the, the, what is it? The chase of the Valkyries or the pursuit. I forget what the actual, now I'm doing this live and, or not live, but you know, the pursuit of the Valkyries or the chase of Valkyries, whichever it is, that piece of music, when you hear it, even if you don't know what it's about, you feel like, oh, I'm running away from something or towards or running after something. One of the two, right? You kind of feel that chase in the music. It, it touches on something that is real archetypally, and you just recognize that. And that's what I think we lose a little bit when we go to just digital. Not that that's always bad to have digital options, but I do think that the highest form of art that we're going to be able to create is that stuff that's much closer to the person. So now let's go to the next clip here where we will talk about beauty and why beauty is objective. So much I think that has changed that you have to still apply those eternal principles in a different way. And so I think it's good because art does have this eternal, it shares in this objective beauty that is eternal. And so when you can take that tradition and bring it to today, not only do you educate people in the past, but you kind of carry that on in, a, in your own expression of it. And so I really like yeah. that idea a lot. Yeah, that's a that you described it really, really well. Um, yeah, for some, it's this is a new thing for me. I, I feel like it's important to you know bring the old into the new because I don't you can't go back fully. Like I romanticize the past, and I like this meme on Twitter that's like return, like return to tradition. Like I think that's that's a really good uh, new meme. But um, you can't we can't actually go back in full. Like we do have to contend with the modern world and like actually and move forward. But um, I, I, I want to try to bring what's good of the past uh, forward with us. So, yeah, I think that art is a good way to do that. I really like what she said about not being able to go back fully. We can recover pieces of our tradition and we can do that, but we, we can't make it the same thing, right? Because art has to be done by a particular person in a particular time. And we can't go back to that time exactly. We don't have the time machine to take us there. But what we can do is pull from that tradition and apply that to our day. That's what I think she's doing really well. Amy is if you check out her work, it's amy-mistrini.com. Just giving her a plug there because <laughs> I don't think I did at the beginning of the show. But you can check out her work and see a little bit more of what she's doing, but creating Madonna and child creating for me, I think the epitome of this is she has, and I've seen other artists doing this too, where they paint the galaxies, they paint things in the celestial heavens. And that's something that our forefathers dreamed of doing. I would assume they stared up at the stars all the time. They loved to look up and see what was up there and made stories out of it, and all sorts of other things, but they couldn't see it up close like we can, right? You can take pictures of the galaxies around us and use that as inspiration for the same 
sort of paintings as, you know, people did for landscapes, right? It's not different, in my opinion, in essence as much as it is, is in form. It's taking a look at the world around us and recreating it on a canvas. And if you do that beautifully, I think it really works, right? It's it's kind of this new frontier. I mean, if you just imagine the people who were going out and painting the the American West 150, 200, you know, 200 years ago as we were starting to explore it and look through all the nooks and crannies or the people who painted any part of the new world or anything that was novel that we came across, right? When you take someone and you capture that in painting, it's not that different than to say, I'm going to paint Mars with the asteroids behind it or something like that, because that's something that we can now see that we soon will be able to potentially visit. And so you can take those traditional ways of doing things and translate them to our modern situation. What I want us to remember is that you have to keep what's eternal about it, which is the beauty, which is connecting that human experience to beauty. And that's what's really important, in my opinion, because beauty is an objective reality. And although people will argue it's subjective, it it still is objective. <laughs> and I think I've talked about this before. I know that beauty being in the eye of the beholder is not an argument that it's relative. It is to say that beauty is something that requires a subject, someone that can say, I am, someone that is self-aware, a being rather that is self-aware, a someone rather than a something to observe it and to look at it or to hear it or whatever that is, right? Even if a blind deaf person can feel the statue and the curves and have an image of some sort, whatever that image is, I don't fully know. I'm not in that situation, but you know, it's almost like touching someone else's face and getting a picture of someone's face that they are meeting, right? They can do that with the statue as well. They can still engage art in some way. And it requires that subjective being, or sub, not subjective, that being that is a subject that is self-aware to view it in order to have beauty there. Because beauty is an abstraction that has to be witnessed to by something that can un- comprehend it. Right. And that's where a beautiful sunset is beautiful to a person, but not to a squirrel or a bird that's flying by. There's no beauty there. They may see the colors. They may see what's there, but it's not beautiful to them. And so that's where I think we have to really push is to connect to that tradition and to make our beauty object or make our art objectively beautiful, but connected to this human experience that is here and present to the people today. It needs to be relevant, not relative, right? That's what I think we need to do is take what's traditional and make it relevant rather than doing away with tradition or doing away with relevancy. You can't, you can have both. We've done it multiple times throughout our culture and our history where we take something that was lost or that was beginning to become stale and made it relevant to the people of today. And we can do that again, I think. And so let's now hop in a little bit or hop over to the clip 
about architecture and why it's, in her, in Amy's opinion, who does not do architecture, why architecture is the highest form of art. And so let's hear from her about that. You know, we mentioned right before this that you enjoy Roger Scruton. I think that one reason why I was drawn to him so much is that he did have that sense where he was addressing today's problems, but he drew on this, I mean, I don't know, probably anybody who's more, what seems more well-read in, you know, the last 20 years, who was, uh, you know, out of all the college professors who were out there writing and lecturing, he seems to me just like, he's probably read everything that was ever written. And so to be able to draw on that wealth of knowledge and in all sorts of different ways, I mean, he talked, the soul of the world, I think is one that's just the most beautiful way to understand how beauty works. Yeah, he's great. He, um, I love his documentary called, uh, beauty what it is and why it matters is that the title of it or am i thinking of a book i read about beauty it might be i think he did have a book that was like that i'm pretty sure yeah so he might have done a documentary on his is that on netflix or um oh it's definitely not on netflix it's too pure (laughs) for netflix um (laughs) no there's some good stuff on netflix but i mostly don't like it but um yeah it's um it was a bbc documentary um And it's very much worth worth watching to see him like out in the world looking at buildings and explaining like why this one isn't beautiful versus like this place. And he talked a lot about um, how we don't build places of of dwelling anymore. Like uh, places are kind of should be built to be somewhat homey in a place that you want to stay in. And now we just have this very modern world where everyone's very transient and um, spaces are almost encouraging you to to move around and keep going because there's nothing there that we're not building places you'd like want to remain in and like call home. Um, I really liked his, his thoughts on architecture. I, I'm a painter, but I actually, I think architecture is actually the highest art because it's, it's what you live in. Like, it's just, I think. So as far as architecture being the highest form of art, I don't know if I necessarily agree or disagree on that, but I definitely think it's a unique form of art because as she mentioned, it's expressive of how we live our lives, right? If you look at the, just, if you kind of look at how we might have had little cottages that look similar in our local area and had a distinct character and it kind of reflected the way us and our community would have lived, you know, several hundred years ago or a thousand years ago or more. And as we've kind of gone to this more globalist uh, economy, things have become very similar everywhere. And like she said, much more transient. They're not homey. If you look at a suburban house, it's, it is kind of cold and, you know, generally just, boring and gray and all of that and even my house that is built a hundred years ago ish has a bit more character like my street the houses are different and they are similar and they're like bungalows and maybe a couple two-story houses and you know little different things about them but they're all kind of quirky and have a character and a face that's different and unique and you don't find that in much of the architecture that we see today but I do think what's interesting, like I said, is that it is where you reside. It's, I think, overly expressive or more expressive rather than other forms of art because that dwelling, that home that you live in is a huge part of your life. It expresses 
how you eat together, how you cook, how you clean, how you study, where you sleep. I mean, it's so integrated into every part of your life, your house is that. And then also when you look at outside of that, where you work, right? Where you go to school, all of these other things that we do, where you shop, whatever that is, you are out in the world living your life in a certain way and the buildings around you interplay with how you live your life. And I see a lot of architects that I follow on Twitter showing how you can change the way people interact just by changing the way architecture is done and cities lay out, right? Making it so that you don't have the big four-lane streets for cars to go through, but you have little areas where cars can't get through and you have to walk from place to place. It, it changes the dynamic of how people live. And if you've been to smaller European towns or even Central and South American towns, I would say even really if you look outside of big Western cities for the most part and really the big cities in general, uh, you can see that there's these ways that little towns and this isn't true for America, I don't think as much because we've had the car for half of our history. So I don't think that you have these quaint towns as much, but you do have some of that. That when you go there, there's just a different atmosphere. There's like you have this mar open market area or if you just picture going to a farmer's market, for instance, you can sort of have that interaction with people around you in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places as you go about your business if you don't have your city laid out the way we have our cities laid out. And I'm not saying that it's good or bad, but there is something that we live out and that we express in the way that we build our cities. And so you can see what we prioritize, which is commerce, which is, you know, economy or making things more What's the exact word? Making thing, making it just really easy for us to do business, to... We're looking for expediency over beauty, I guess, and over community. And we prioritize expediency and commerce over community and beauty or local character. And you can trade some of those things off for one another, but you can't really just... I don't know if you can have all of those, necessarily. And... I think that there really is something that's beautiful about architecture that is expressive, that is, I guess I should say wonderful about architecture that is beautiful and expressive because when you have that, I think it lifts up all aspects of your life to go to school and you're in this grand hall and it's not, you know, thrown up with crappy drywall and, you know, boring tile that is in every other school and hospital, right? I'm not saying that every building necessarily that we have has to be this ornate cathedral-like building, but we could have more beauty. We could have a little bit more ornateness and a little bit more of a expression of a local character instead of making it to where if you take a picture of a building, you can't tell where it is right? You should be able, I think, to tell where a building is from. You can tell where music is from a lot of times. 
in at least in some respect, you can tell where literature is from, at least in some respect, right? If you're trained in it, but if you showed a trained architect a suburban house, there's a good chance they couldn't tell you where it was, right? Or some piece of a skyscraper, right? Maybe the whole skyscraper you could know, but not really even necessarily. I mean, the building in downtown Indianapolis and the building in downtown Nashville, the two tallest buildings look very, very similar, almost identical. And we're several hundred miles apart and they're in the foothills of a mountain and we're in a giant cornfield slash forest is what would be around us. We're very different. And yet our buildings are the same and same. You could probably be said for what's on either coast even and up in Denver in the mountains. It's, it's not that different look of a city for how different the geographies and all the other parts of the city are, right? The way, the different industries that are there, the different attractions that would bring people there. And so that's what I think architecture offers is this way of in your everyday life, being connected to something beautiful around you that kind of nurtures you in a way, right? Your home keeps you warm and offers shelter from inclement weather, but also is a place where you can store food and water and, you know, clean yourself and all the kind of needs that you have, you can basically meet by fostering them in your home. And so that's, I think, what architecture does that other art forms can't do. And that's not to put down put or put down other art forms. I think that it's they are great for what they do, but there's something that's unique and connects to the human experience in a real way about architecture that if you can dole down the architecture, if you can, like we, going back to the quote of the week this week, you know, that culture is arts. <clears throat> sorry, I'm going to have to pull it up again to remind myself exactly what it is, but it's culture is the arts elevated to the set of beliefs. And if you take architecture as one of the arts, when you start to change the way people live and interact with each other and all of that, you kind of start to change their beliefs and you change the culture. I think most readily by changing people's homes, by changing their schools and what they look like and how they, people interact with other people in those areas. And so that's what I think about architecture being the highest form of art. And I think that Amy really touched on something that I think is true and interesting that a lot of people might miss. And so that wraps up what I wanted to talk about today. I really want to just kind of have some of the main takeaways are that beauty, I believe, is objective, that there is a real thing, a real objective standard for beauty, and that art then is our struggling to connect a subjective experience, something that another person who can, another being that can say, I am, another self-aware being, a subject, can connect to that objective beauty, that truth and that goodness that go with that beauty, and take away something that maybe someone else did experience or you could experience, right? Whatever that is, being able to pull away some sort of part of the human experience without having to 
undergo it yourself. You can connect to another human being in that through that art. And I think that's what we need to do is create beautiful art that really speaks to the human experience in a real way and balance those two things because you need the objective reality and the objective standards, but we still are subjects and we understand the world and we interact with the world through our subjective lens. And so you have to find a way to pair those two things together. And I think what modernity and postmodernity has done is divorce the objective reality from the subjective experience that we hold. And what I hope is that arts can be a way for us to start to bring those back together. And that's what I would like to see. So if you'd like to do that, or actually really just give me your thoughts. If you like this episode, if you like kind of how I broke it down and elaborated on some of the points, let me know. I want to hear from you. If you don't like it, let me know. I want to hear from you. And if you're listening to this podcast still, I'm guessing you're interested in what I talk about. So subscribe if you're listening to this, checking this out on YouTube. If you're watching this or if you're listening on wherever you get your podcasts or on the website, you can subscribe and leave a good rating and review. Go to conversationforgeneration.com slash podcast to subscribe basically wherever you find it. Or if you just search it, wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find it. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Conovargen or on Facebook.com slash Conversation for Our Generation. And check out Amy Mastrini. She's, I got links to her website, but just so you can hear it here, it's amy-mastrini.com. Or if you search on Twitter, you can find her. I believe her handle is just at Amy Mastrini, which is spelled uh, M-A-S-T-R-I-N-E. So you can find her there as well. And follow her to see more of her art coming out. I've seen her uh, putting out some Twitter fleets about uh, what she's been working on. There's some cool stuff there. So definitely check that out as well. And so let me know your thoughts. If you have any mailbag questions, also let me know. Just DM me on any of the social media platforms that I'm on. Or leave a comment somewhere. Or message me uh, on my blog, conversation conversationforgeneration.com slash contact. And so thank you for listening to this episode of the Conversation for Our Generation. Let's get the dialogue going. I'll talk to you next time.